0: It really means a lot to us. This was my my first international title. And for Leonie, it's the first title on elite level. So it was her first race on elite level, and she directly won. So for our team, it's the world.
1: Welcome to Flame Bears, the women athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. I'm your host, Jamie. In this episode, German Olympic rower Carlotta Nwajidi discusses the implications of race and what it means to be a black female rower in a predominantly white sport. She also talks about how rowing in the outdoors birthed a passion for environmentalism and how her German team is combating the climate crisis. My name is Kalatan Wajida. I
0: am a German rower. And I am a vice world champion, a European champion, and a European silver and bronze medalist. When I first made the national team, I was just very happy and excited to represent Germany for the first time and to be one of those athletes that can go to world championships.
1: As a non-rower, I was curious about the history of rowing in the Games, so I did some digging. Rowing was actually one of the original sports in the modern Olympic Games that began in 1896. Here's a quick 101 on the sport. Rowing takes two forms. Sculling, where each rower gets two oars, one left, one right. In singles, doubles, and quad. Sweep, where each rower gets only one oar, with teams of two, four, and eight. Carlotta will be sculling in Tokyo. She spent all year training for this once in a lifetime opportunity. So I was really surprised how she found out that the games were being postponed.
0: I was at home quarantining because one of my teammates was diagnosed positive with COVID. So everyone of our team had to stay at home for two weeks, but we had to go on training because there was no official announcement that they're not happening. So we had to train like the Olympic Games will happen. And that was a very difficult situation for everyone of our team. And I just remember that it was one morning when I read it in the news that the games were canceled.
1: Carlotta got through this year by continuing to row. With dedication like that, I wanted to know what drew her to the sport in the first place.
0: It's a sport which you can do outside in the nature. It's beautiful surrounding all the time. But what I also like a lot about drawing that it's quite complex to be an outstanding athlete because there are different components that you need to be very good. You have to be very strong and enduring, but also you need a great technique and a good feeling for the boat. And also you need very good mental strength. So if one of those components are missing, your performance is going to be worse.
1: As it turns out, even elite athletes have to start somewhere.
0: I started drawing when I was 10. And my first drawing memory is how I, as a small girl, went to the boathouse and I tried rowing for the first time and it was just so difficult to combine the whole movement. (laughs) I fell into the water a lot and it was so difficult to learn the movement, but through the time I improved.
1: Carlotta's journey to Tokyo started with a secondary school teacher who asked her to join the rowing team and with an athlete role model who inspired her to stay afloat. I had an athlete
0: role model. Um, She's an Australian rower who already retired. Her name is Kim Brennan. And she became Olympic champion in the Women's Single Scouts in 2016. And she was just an outstanding athlete.
1: So I tracked down Kim and spoke with this gold, silver, and bronze medalist across three different Olympics to ask her about what it means to be a role model for the next generation of Olympians
0: humbling. I'm very excited to follow her journey. People do look up to you, and you have this amazing platform to actually make a lot of difference in people's lives. So finding those things that really matter to you that you can speak authentically and genuinely about to make the world a better place, I think, is an incredible thing.
1: One thing that Carlotta speaks so authentically about is how her racial identity shapes who she is today.
0: I identify as a black light-skinned woman. I'm light-skinned because my mother is white and my father is black. And because of my lighter skin tone, I experiencing privileges which dark-skinned people do not experience. I don't know if there was a specific moment that I realized that I was black, but I always noticed when I grew up that I wasn't really represented in society, for example, in kindergarten or in school, the care workers and the teachers were white. All of my toys were white. The books on TV, everyone was white and black people were always not the norm. And black people were always shown in context with some negative aspects. And that's how I grew up and what i would noticed when I grew up. I understood the concept of race as a social construct in my early 20s when I found a book, the book of Rennie Ederlodge, why I'm no longer talking about race to white people. And there I first read about being white as a social norm and um, about privileges and stuff. And then I started to do a bit of academic research and found some other books. And more and more, I understood who I am in society, what it means to be Black in our society, and that there are differences.
1: Carlotta's mother experienced this firsthand with her daughter. She speaks about being proud of Carlotta for taking something negative
2: and turning it into a positive. Here she is. My name is Sabine Grages Wajide and I'm Carlotta's mother. I'm most proud of her personal development. Carlotta experienced racism since she was a small child. When we were out together somewhere, some people got on, on, on our nerves, you know, or on my nerves, because they wanted to touch Carlotta's hair or things like that. It was painful for me to see that. When she went to school, She was around nine years old she had problems at school but not because of her notes they (laughs) they told me carlotta's behavior is bad i couldn't understand it so we had to go somewhere and um, needed help from a school psychologist and they uh, confirmed that carlotta's behavior was just normal so these were experiences no child should have. There was no sense in it. So these were just small examples which they are still painful for me, but they also should have been painful for her. And now she is a grown up, but um, racist experiences uh, continued for her. So I think it's logical to stand up for anti-racism. And it is, I'm proud that she is doing it. So she took something negative and made something positive out of it.
1: While progress is being made, albeit way too slowly, medals can't shield someone from the effects of systemic racism.
0: I think I can say that I'm experiencing racism in different dimensions. So it's important to know that there is... This individual form of, for example, someone insults you by using the N-word or something else. But there's also a structural and everyday racism, which I'm quite more experiencing and which is not obvious if you don't see it, but it's there. And this is actually what I felt in some way my whole life, but sometimes I didn't have the words for it before I started reading about it. For example, this systemic racism is that the point of view, everything is told, is from a white perspective and that there are not different perspectives as a norm, but only the white. And also institutions like schools or the police or universities are reproducing this structural racism. We are socialized by it. And because of that, it's not enough to say I'm not racist because the racism is already there. But we first have to see it because then we can take steps to unlearn it.
1: I wanted to understand how to go about unlearning systemic racism. So I spoke with someone who's dedicated himself to racially diversifying the sport of rowing.
3: My name is Arshay Cooper. I am the author of uh, A Most Beautiful Thing and a rower.
1: Mr. Cooper is being extremely humble. He spearheaded and captained the first all-Black high school rowing team in the United States and has since launched an organization encouraging Black and Brown students to row.
3: When you study the history of sports in this country, uh, no sport, although they all have made a significant impact in the world, in some way, none has entirely reached its goal with just changing lives without the power of diversity and leadership in in the sport it's, itself. I think that it makes the sport faster, right? I believe that with uh, all my heart. And I think that the lessons that you learn from the sport, the calmness and the peace and the the meditation you receive from the water is very beneficial of those who have been victims of the structural limitation that started in this country many years ago. And so I think it's very important Black people and people of color have access to the sport because of all those reasons and all the opportunities that come with it as well, especially college opportunities.
1: I wanted to know why there was this precedence of rowing as a predominantly white sport. So I asked.
3: It's rough. You know, when you start a team, especially with mostly Black athletes, folks will go to the the neighborhood that possibly can benefit from the sport most. Which means is that you most likely would not have your own boathouse. You are sharing a boathouse with a lot of private school kids. And so when you are told that you have a team and this would be your sport and your boathouse and you show up and none of the images on the wall, the languages, the decor reflects the young Black people they're trying to put in their seat, that becomes, to me, that's hostile, right? And you don't feel warm. You don't feel welcoming. And then you have all these private school kids there. And the only thing they know about folks of color is what they see on the news. And that comes with a lot of stereotypes. And uh, and so every day, in your own sport, in your own boathouse feels like an away game. And then prepping just... To be an amazing athlete in this sport is, is exhausting. So you have to prep for race days and race issues. I mean, <laughs> I tell you, it, it, it's, it's tough, you know? So um, to be a part of this sport and to learn the lessons of this sport is, is amazing. But to just to feel like you're truly a part is something that a lot of people like me don't really feel, not even on the Olympic level.
1: I wanted to hear what Carlotta's experience was like rowing in a literal sea of white and if she ever felt like she didn't belong there, like Mr. Cooper.
0: Rowing is a very white sport and also kind of an elite sport. So earlier people with a lot of money and it's a very academic sport. So I think that you can see in society that more white people are wealthy, so more white people are doing these sports. I'm always the only black grower. And in my whole career, there always have been just a few other black people, not a lot. Also, when I was younger, people were referring so often to my skin color. And when I was somewhere new, people First, always for me as the Black person before they saw my character.
1: But Carlotta isn't going to just go along with how things are. She's outspoken about racism, but also the climate crisis. Two issues, she argues, are very connected.
0: Racism and the climate crisis are connected. If we want to take the climate crisis serious and fight it, we need to understand the roots of the problem and not only the symptoms like global warming or sea level rise. And therefore, we have to recognize that the crisis is grown out of racist and global injustice and we're triggered by colonialism earlier, and it continues these days.
1: For more on the connection between colonialism and environmentalism, here's Jamie Margolin, an activist, student, author, and co-founder of the youth climate justice movement, Zero Hour.
0: Colonialism never went away, it just evolved. And then there's a next system of oppression very much intertwined with colonialism, racism. There's compelling evidence that increasing social inequality is linked to environmental degradation and that the health of people of color and those living in poverty is negatively impacted by being exposed to higher levels of environmental pollutants than their white and wealthy counterparts. The vast majority of fossil fuel projects and energy extraction sites are built in low-income communities, immigrant communities, and communities of color. Why? Because these communities are already victims of the racist system of oppression, and governments and corporations can exploit their vulnerability. A problem inside of the climate movements are that the climate movements are also reproducing racism because white narratives of the climate justice movements take up all the space, and they're fighting battles that most affected people and areas are already fighting for a a long time, and that makes them invisible. Also, black, indigenous, and people of color are more affected by the climate crisis, on a local scale, but also on a global scale. And one problem is that the climate change is often treated as a future problem, but it's there already, and the most affected people and areas are already experiencing it. And we really have to understand that climate protection is human protection. Um, We cannot protect humans without anti-racism, and racism is a global justice issue, so climate justice must always be anti-racist.
1: Carlotta's anti-racism and environmentalism are no surprise to her mom.
2: I think rowing also plays a part because it is outside. You have to love the nature, It is which has to do with the environment. Carlotta also sees that we are destroying other parts of the world, So that is something I know for sure she doesn't like it because it's part of her character that uh, she doesn't like if something has nothing to do with justice. So what can a
1: rowing team do to become greener? For the German national team, it's about keeping their emissions in check.
0: I'm living in the global north, and as an athlete, I have a high amount of emissions because we're traveling a lot to training camps and to competitions so i asked myself what could i do as an athlete to have an impact on the environment or to make something better and we calculated our emissions for the whole olympic season and it was like 11.5 tons only from the flights mm-hmm. yeah and We thought that we wanted or that, yeah, that was like more or less 272 euros per person, that it would be great if everyone would pay it on their own. But we also know that not everyone will do it. So we also want to do a crowdfunding campaign. And then I found the association Sports for Future. And then Sports for Future is a voice of athletes in the climate justice movement, and then I had the idea that we, as the German national team, might support a reforestation project. And together with a friend of my team, who was also very active, we developed the idea of you know, supporting the reforestation project together with the German national team.
1: This reforestation project is changing the way athletes think about their roles to one of both responsibility and opportunity. Athletes like Carlotta are taking responsibility for countering the negative environmental impacts of their travel while also inspiring others to take action on the climate crisis.
0: We can't buy ourselves out of the climate crisis. So we really want to say that we are not trying just to go on emitting a lot and donating some money and then everything's fine but it's it's just one step of a lot of further steps part of building more pressure through politicians who actually doing the decisions and that's the most important thing of all we talk to the different disciplines of the whole german rowing team and ask them if They would support the project. And we also talked to the Rowing Federation and we got the support. And right now we are close to publishing it. What made us really happy is that with planning this project and talking to the other teammates, we encouraged a discussion about what else we could do to to decrease our emissions. So some other athletes said that it would actually be better to save emissions by, for example, not flying to every training camp. And that made us really happy. And that's what we actually wanted with the project, because I think supporting a reforestation project has a high value. But what also has a value is that you are discussing and inspire bring people and bringing the topic into or to other people and um, spread it.
1: I asked Carlotta what we can do to support her work.
0: think about social injustice and on their own impact. And I want them to think about how we could, as a society and as individuals, fight racism because everyone has the opportunity to, shoot, to do something yeah, and also to fight the climate crisis because if we connect and work together, we can achieve more.
1: So much more. As we head to Tokyo, Carlotta's role model, Kim, has some advice. The Tokyo
0: Olympics will be dynamic. They'll be interesting. They'll be different. Things will go wrong. I think the people who do the best at the Olympics are the ones who really embrace the adversity and the things that do go wrong. So about being resilient and enjoying what you do.
1: Good luck, Carlotta. Not that you need it. Thanks for tuning in to Flame Bears, the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. For more behind the scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Flame Bears. If you missed last week's episode with Olympic saber fencer Eliza Stone, go back and check it out. Eliza discusses how her siblings fueled her to become one of the world's best saber fencers and what happens when things don't go to plan. Massive thank you to Charlotte Pierce of Ready Row USA for inspiring me to dive more into the world of rowing and for introducing me to Arshay Cooper. If you're an avid rower, check out her podcast, Ready Row USA. Thank you to my teammates, Sarah Saad and Hayek Serrato for their help. Thank you to new mentor, Emma Minto, and as always to my iLab guru and mentor, Dino Catano. We'll catch you on our next episode.